everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Elixir Mix podcast. This week on our panel, we have Mark Erickson. Hey there. Eric Berry. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Bobby Juncosa. Did I say that right? Perfect. Uh, Bobby, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Bobby Juncosa. I am the CTO and co-founder of Edgewise, which is a new construction marketplace for builders to sell directly to buyers without the need of agents. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I'm curious, does that actually save people money on their houses? Considerable amounts. Yeah. I mean, uh, my, the main thesis to this is that technology can do the job of agents. Mm -hmm. And because you're not worrying about a commission or a salaried agent, which is a, a popular trend right now, there's a lot of, there's a whole wave of kind of modern brokerages that are paying their agent's salary so they can charge less commissions to the buyer and the seller. Uh, that's still more than what uh, technology costs. So, so my argument is that technology can do that job far cheaper and those savings can be spread to both the builder and the buyer. Yeah, I have a neighbor that works for a builder out here and he's, he's the real estate agent. And so they assign him when they build a new development, they assign him the right. development and he's the one that, yeah, sells those houses. Okay, well, don't, don't tell him that I'm trying to put him out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the other one that I've heard about that's kind of interesting, and I think this one's more private sale, is Homie, homie.com. Uh-huh. There's actually quite a few companies. For the, for the longest time, uh, real estate was, was really lagging behind in the tech space. And just in the last two years, there's been this eruption of real estate tech investment. Everything from... Uh, kind of these modern brokerages and there's you know, dozens of them at this point. Redfin really kind of started that, right? Uh, and now you're seeing everything from artificial intelligence, fill in the blank or blockchain, fill in the blank. You know, everybody's really getting into it at this point. Yeah, I could geek out on the business all day because I think it's fascinating. And yeah. just the, the market forces at work because yeah, I mean, if I can pay a computer $2,000 to sell my house, instead of 6% of the sale value of my house, which is, you know, 18,000, 20,000, you know, whatever, depending on the value of my house. I mean, it's kind of a no brainer as long as I can get the house sold. So, yeah, exactly. And new we, we focus on new construction, yeah. which has a little bit more uh, going for, it's a little more unique in that when you buy resale, that's, that could be a 30 to 60 day turnaround. But if you buy pre-construction in particular, which is what the builder would ideally like to do, they'd like to sell it before they build it. Uh, that means you're waiting six to eight, nine months, maybe 12 months for that home to be built. And there's a lot of customer service that happens in that point. So, you know, I kind of took the, where's my pizza process where they're like, well, you get the notification, oh, pepperoni's being put on your pie at this point. We send out notifications to buyers to say, hey, your unit went from drywall to framing and that's what that means. And this is your estimated delivery date and it helps them with kind of coordinating their move. We have a design studio where you can make your selections. You can make your payments online through ACH and credit card. So a lot of the transactional and fulfillment stuff that doesn't really apply to resale, uh, that does apply to new construction, we're really kind of focusing on that. Very cool. Well, we, yeah. we brought you on to talk about the technology, but it, it's interesting to get kind of the context on the business. Yeah, yeah. One other thing that I thought was interesting, just looking at the way that you have this set up is uh, you mentioned in your application or in your application, in your, uh, in the notes that you gave us that you're using Elixir for a GraphQL API and then you're using Nuxt 
Node.js for the front end. Right, um, yeah. So yeah, uh, usually when, when I hear about Elixir or Phoenix being used, it's kind of used in the same way that I hear people using Rails. So it, it does some server-side rendered HTML. And then, you know, somebody might drop something like Vue and Nux is just a, you know, it's a layer on Vue that builds universal apps uh, or universal UIs. Um, yeah, static sites, I guess, is the best way to put it um, with Vue. So I, what, what, I'm curious, first of all, what, why did you choose to use something like Nux on top of a GraphQL and then how did you get from, um, yeah, how did you come to the conclusion that you wanted to use uh, Elixir, GraphQL, Nuxt? Right, yeah. Okay, so, so I'll kind of touch on the whole stack there. Um, when, when Edgewise first started, uh, you know, being an initial startup with no funding, uh, we, we built it in Drupal, uh, you know, PHP and Drupal 7. And uh, that worked great. Um, in that it's it's very easy to get up and running uh, quickly, but it's a content management system. Uh, it's not necessarily an application framework, uh, and so you can outgrow it very quickly. Uh, so we went from Drupal and PHP to wanting to move to something a bit more mature, but not quite ready to move away from PHP altogether. So we went to Symfony, which um, in the PHP world. Uh, right now, I think a lot of people are using Laravel, but at the time, Symfony was was the more mature uh, framework to use. And, and I think in some cases, people are still will choose Symfony over Laravel. Uh, and that was a good move. But even then, it was kind of understood that, okay, this is only going to take us so far. We're eventually going to want to move to something uh, that was more scalable. Um, and I don't particularly love PHP. Uh, throughout my career, I've been able to work in a bunch of different languages and PHP isn't exactly, uh, you know, in the top five for me even, but, but it, it is a very practical solution for some things, particularly if you're doing blogs or, or uh, content management systems and things. Uh, so at that point we were using Vue, we were already using Vue on the front end and PHP on the back end with a, with a REST API. And then GraphQL came out and I immediately fell in love with, with GraphQL. The, the whole idea immediately resonated with me, particularly the idea that, that it was very explicit about the data that's returned and you weren't going to bloat your responses with data that you don't necessarily need or having to make multiple requests. You know, on one end of REST, you're either going to get more than you want, more than you asked for, or you're going to get too little, which means you have to go make subsequent requests to get the rest of the data. With GraphQL, you can say in one query, this is all that I want or need. Uh, so that made a lot of sense. The other option is just create another endpoint that gives you exactly what you need, but then you have to manage all of the endpoints. Then you have a lot of very specific endpoints, yeah. Uh, and, that, and that comes with its own you know, issues. So GraphQL immediately resonated and I said, okay, what do we have to do to get this going? And PHP actually does have some GraphQL support. It's not very good in, in my opinion, but we were using Symfony, so we made that work. So at a certain point, we had Symfony, GraphQL, and Vue. And we hit a bit of a lull in our, uh, in our roadmap. And I said, okay, now's probably a good time for us to think about the next big refactor or iteration uh, of the stack. And we did a couple things all at once. One, we moved to Docker containers. We weren't using containers at the time. Uh, I wanted to move to Nuxt um, on the front end. And the big reason for that is SEO. 
Um, there's issues if you're using Vue for your application, that it's great. But if you're rendering everything in the browser, then you're not really going to do very well on the SEO side. And there's some hacks and some things to try to get around that. But the easiest solution is to have the content come from the server initially, and then what they call you know hydrated into your your browser application. You could kind of hack something together where you render it on the server and then it comes to the browser, it's searched by the spiders and then blown away. And then you kind of start fresh with your JavaScript app. But then you have this kind of situation where you're rendering it or, or you're maintaining two code bases. One is the static content and then one is the dynamic content. Uh, so I wanted to avoid that situation and just have the content come from the server and then just be hydrated. And Nuxt is really good for that. Or JavaScript rendering in general is good for that. So that was the decision to move to Nuxt. Nuxt also, as you guys probably know, when you're working on a more mature JavaScript application in the browser, the tooling and the amount of knowledge that goes into just getting the application running smoothly is really burdensome. And it changes like weekly. So my, I kept up with it for years and it's, there's got to be an, an easier way. Like, can I just delegate this to somebody else? Like, I don't want to have to be dealing with every little quirk that comes out with Webpack or should I be using Rollup this week or, you know, whatever. And, and how do I do chunk splitting or, you know, route splitting or, you know, or H, you know, HTTP2. It's, it's never ending. So the nice thing about Nuxt, and I, I kind of maintained both simultaneously in parallel, the nice thing with Nuxt is that that's something you can kind of delegate to them. All that boilerplate on getting your front-end application up and running, you can say, okay, Nuxt team, I, I've now delegated this to you. I trust you guys to stay up on top of this. So one, it was, it was the SEO component, but it was also the uh, kind of boilerplate of, of keeping an advanced front-end application uh, running smoothly. And then on the back end, uh, I was looking for something with higher performance and better productivity. And I know that's like, you know, that's what the, that's Elixir's thing, right? It's, it's performance and productivity. And it wasn't necessarily concurrency per se. It wasn't necessarily, you know, nine nines. And some of these things you hear about a lot, uh, it wasn't even functional programming per se, because I didn't have a whole ton of experience in functional programming. Um, but it was the, the mix or that promise of performance and productivity, that, that sweet spot there. And, um, because the front end is, was going to be in node, it was a natural thing to think, okay, do I just extend Nuxt to work in node? And, and then all of it will be in, in, in node, the whole thing, you know, that's the promise of universal JavaScript, right? It's like, there's this cognitive load that you, you get around and, and all this stuff. But I don't, I don't actually like JavaScript. I, I, and I use it because we have to, you know, that's what's in the browser. Um, you know, and WebAssembly is not, you know, quite there yet. And there's all these other hacks. So can I, can I write in, you know, C sharp and have it convert into JavaScript or Elixir? I know that, you know, that's the thing. Everybody's trying to take their language of choice and then, and then transpile it into JavaScript, but I wasn't really ready to do that. Um, so I wasn't exactly looking for an excuse to use JavaScript on the back end. Uh, so um, it came down to JavaScript uh, or, you know, Node for the back end, Go, which is another uh, popular choice these days, and Elixir. And, you know, I, I've been kind of rambling here for a bit, but, you know, I, having gone through all three, I, I eventually narrowed it down to Elixir. And that began a 
three-month refactor of porting our Symfony backend code to Elixir, putting our GraphQL PHP uh, API to um, Phoenix and Absinthe, and then porting our front-end view to Nuxt. And, and moving our uh, you know, kind of GitHub to EC2 deployments uh, to, to Docker. You, you went over a whole bunch and I, I kept having questions yeah. along the way. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine, <laughs> but I didn't want to cut you off because I, I, I'm so fascinated by what you're going through. Um, so you went from PHP to uh, Elixir and, that's, and, and, and you moved GraphQL over from there to the Elixir. Uh, I assume you're using Phoenix, right? Phoenix, yeah, Absinthe yeah. and Phoenix, yeah. Absinthe and Phoenix, okay. So uh, help me understand like how things connect because um, with Nuxt, so I'm fairly familiar with Nuxt, but they provide mm-hmm. either, they provide one way, the universal app, or they provide the single page application uh, right. rendered. Now, in my experience in the past, which hasn't been a great experience, I've tried to use a single page app and actually inject it directly into the priv folder of the, uh, uh, the static folder of the, um, of the Phoenix app. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm assuming, based on what you've said, that you actually have them completely separate applications that are, that are maintained separately. Is that accurate? That's, that's accurate. Yeah, they're deployed to separate Docker containers. And I think where you could get tripped up there is that uh, Nuxt has a server component, right? The, the server is actually going to render it. And so you're like, well, wait a second. There's a server rendering your JavaScript, but then there's also a server handling your, your backend. And that's true. They're, they're two separate servers. One server handles the JavaScript rendering. And when you make a page request on the server, it will talk server to server. The Nuxt backend will make an a, a GraphQL API call to Phoenix, which will return the data back to the Nuxt backend, render it on the server, and then send that to the browser, where then the application is hydrated and any future calls will be made from the browser to the Phoenix backend. So there's a little bit of a love triangle there. No, I, I totally understand. Uh, this, is, this is this is right up my alley. Um, do you deal with WebSockets at all through this whole process? Yeah, and there's um, there's a couple benefits of doing it uh, using sockets, particularly on the, the server-to-server connection, because you're not making multiple connections. So you could, let's say there's a page request, the Nuxt backend will open up a socket to Phoenix, and then all of the back and forth can happen over that socket. Uh, so you're not making new connections. And then when you're done and you're about to send it to the browser, you close the connection and then the browser is sent the data. And then you could decide whether or not you want to open up, get another socket connection for browser to uh, Phoenix connections or just do it through a typical request response. But um, we also use WebSockets for like presence and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, there, there's some performance benefits to using the socket, uh, making GraphQL uh, query mutation request responses over the socket as opposed to just doing it over a regular request response. And that's not necessarily, um, you don't have to use, I think a lot of times when people talk about sockets and GraphQL, they're thinking in the context of subscriptions, right? Um, and that's not actually what we use it for. We'll actually use request, um, like request and response type of relationships over the socket. There's a performance benefit to doing it. Where can someone like me go to learn how to do exactly what you're trying, what you're explaining? I don't, I don't know who's doing this. Um, you so know, what I, you're explaining is exactly what I was trying to do, but I couldn't figure it out. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know anybody who's really, I, yeah, I'm sure people are, but I, I don't, I don't see a lot of talk about this. Um, I've mentioned it in forums and people have a response very similar to what you're having right now. And I probably should just write an article on how to do it. Yes, particularly please. around authentication. You know, there's, there's an authentication piece to, to address there. And, um, uh, there's, uh, security issues. I even, um, had a, you know, a back and forth with Jose about, um, uh, about, uh, cross, uh, cross site scripting issues. And, um, and there's, there's a, uh, cookie issue, um, that if you make a, 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 um, a socket connection that you will, you'll end up sending a bunch of cookies that, that uh, would be insecure. And so that the Phoenix will actually prevent that from happening. And so how do you authenticate if you're not going to use cookies, this whole discussion around authentication, um, and security ultimately does come up when, when you get into sockets. Where was the complexity on the authentication? Was it on the Nuxt side or was it on the Phoenix side? Um, well, this is a bit of a, a, a rabbit hole to go down. Um, and anybody who talks about Next uh, on the React side or Nuxt on the Vue side, there's ultimately going to be a conversation about how do I handle authentication? And I, I'll try to briefly touch on it for how we do it. Basically, we, uh, in short, we use a HTTP only cookie, uh, which means it can't be accessed through JavaScript, right? So when you log in, you actually log in on the server, on the Nuxt server end, which will store the cookie through HTTP only. That's the only way you can, you can store the, the HTTP only cookie. Then that cookie is uh, brought down to the browser and then back up to the server on every request. And that's how you're authenticated. If you log out, it, you, the server will clear that cookie and then that's how the front end knows that you're unauthenticated and shows you the different you know, UI based on being authenticated or unauthenticated. That cookie is your uh, Phoenix JWT. That's, that's your cookie uh, token. That's your JWT token that will be sent to the server. So basically what ends up happening is that if you're authenticated, let's say you log in, that JWT is gonna be stored as the cookie and on every page request, Nuxt will look for that, that cookie. And if it sees the value, it treats that as the JWT and makes your API requests to, to Phoenix to get the GraphQL query or mutations, sends that back. And then that's what uh, is rendered on the Nuxt backend and then sent to the browser. So um, it, when you introduce sockets into that, that's actually not a problem. You can still use the cookie. Um, but when you get it down to the browser, that can be an issue as far as you no longer have access to that HTTP only cookie. So you have to find another way to get, uh, the JWT into the browser so that you can make browser based connections. And that brings up the whole issue of sending cookies through socket connections. Right, so I really, right. I probably, I really should write like a whole article on, on all of this kind of nitty gritty. Yeah. Uh, I will, I will, I will donate money for you to do that. <laughs> okay. Okay. So with, with uh, the choice of having those separate, uh, separate um, uh, projects that are communicating with each other, why don't you just go straight Elixir and, and uh, EEX files or something like that where you don't have to worry about that front end, uh, completely different front end path? Right. Yeah. Um, I think that question probably applies in every case. Uh, you know, why not just use Twig in PHP? Why not use uh, EEX in Elixir? And, you know, every backend has some kind of templating language. The problem with that is that you could render SEO content in EEX, right? But then you're going to get it to the browser. And then what do you do with it? You can't hydrate it. 
because it, there'll be a mismatch without getting too into the details of hydration with, with Vue and JavaScript, but the content has to match identically to what came from the server to what the app would have rendered. So um, you could try to hack your way into making sure they're identical so that the hydration works, but it's, it's a mess. So what will end up happening is that the Vue app will throw away whatever came from the server and start fresh, which means you're basically uh, duplicating your effort. You're going to render something from the server so that, that the, the crawling spiders will see it, but then Vue is going to kick in and throw it all out and start fresh. And there's a performance benefit to only hydrating the app as opposed to rendering it from scratch. So EEX can work, but, it's, but if you're, if you're, committing yourself to a lot of front-end technology, a lot of, a lot of AJAX-type calls, a lot of you know, async, um, then you're probably better off just ignoring the fact that anything can come from, from Elixir, which is, you know, yeah. It's uh, tough to, to hear that. If, if you like EEX, then, and I, I almost never use it now. It's, it may not even be a feature. Well, you know what? We use it for emails. You know, if we're sending emails uh, out to transactional emails when people sign up or they make a payment or that kind of thing, we use EEX for that. But as far as um, the browser content, we don't use it. It's so interesting you say that, but it's not part of the Phoenix story. No. And yet it should be. I really think it should be. Like Rails, Ruby on Rails is starting to take a path where they're saying, yeah, we acknowledge the fact that people are really wanting to build separate front ends to their, to their back ends that we provide. And yet Elixir doesn't really have that story that they, that they tell. No, it, it, and I've noticed that. Uh, in, in some ways, Elixir and Phoenix are, are being presented in a, in a somewhat traditional way where there's this traditional page request and response from the server. And then sure, you know, throw a little jQuery in there for your animation, but that's not really the web that we live in. I mean, there's major performance benefits to doing it that way, but I, you're, you're quite limited in what you can do uh, on the front end if everything you're presenting is being rendered server-side. But in my I, opinion. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I've seen that now uh, several times where you know, I'm doing a lot of Phoenix development work, and especially when I'm doing GraphQL, it's because I have a completely different front end. That is, you know, completely, it's a separate app. It's like, I've got one in Vue, I had one in React before. And, you know, it's a very different thing. And, and I, I, I appreciate, Eric, that you pointed that out, that, yeah, that's not part of the Phoenix story that we currently are hearing and seeing. And I think maybe that's just a gap right now. And I, I would love to see people help fill that and giving examples of, hey, here's how you can have a Phoenix app as an API only thing. And you know you can have Phoenix serve up that JavaScript front end, or you can have it be like you're doing completely separate in a um, separate Docker container. Maybe it's deployed separately to Cloudflare or something else. Um, but yeah, I, I, think that's a, I think it's a totally valid use and it's one that I'm actually using. Yeah, we, I mean, the term that, that I think a lot of people use for that setup is, is it's headless. You know, our, our Phoenix server is headless. There is no presentation layer to it. I think one of the more valuable points that I could, so that, that, that aspect of developing has really been covered a bit through different blog posts talking about how you can build um, this and that using a, a front end like Vue or React in the back end as, um, as, as Phoenix. But as far as 
utilizing the power of WebSockets. I think it's such an under underplayed uh, uh, power that exists in Phoenix, and it's a first class citizen in Phoenix and Elixir um, that really enables like some serious power uh, power development. Like it just, exactly what you said, you're actually having a front end separate application communicating server to server via WebSockets through uh, to get GraphQL results. I mean, that's insane. That's amazing. Where else, where else do you see that happening? And yet I look, I, I look for exactly what you're talking about and it's nowhere out there, but it's that magic power. It's like Superman, what's under his shirt is, is what we're talking about here. Yeah. I, when I started doing it, um, I did some AB tests, you know, it was pretty easy, uh, on the front end we're using Apollo. So it's pretty easy to swap out an Apollo client to say, use the socket client and use the traditional HTTP client. And we could very easily do the same exact query mutation. We can AB test to see the performance benefit to establishing a connection, the time it takes to establish the connection and then send the request and, and get the response as opposed to establishing a connection via socket and then doing the same exact request and response. I mean, it's, it's a trick, right? The way that sockets handle risk and response, it's a trick that allows you to associate the push and the pull through an ID, but the end result, and, and especially when it's abstracted through Apollo, is that it feels the same. You made a request and you got a response. And the performance benefits can be pretty dramatic. Uh, I, so I'm kind of with you. I'm surprised that we don't hear more about it, I particularly with um, you know, server-to-server, where in server-to-server um, relationships, there's less to worry about as far as security goes. So you'd think it would make a lot of sense there. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price to performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash elixir. Yeah, I did work with a, a guy who helped build that on one of the projects I worked on where all, it was REST-based at the time is uh, before GraphQL is very popular in the Elixir world. Uh, but we were doing REST calls, but over channels and over sockets. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting, just that having that back and forth conversation. Yeah, because you're right. It, like the, the TCP connection remains open. It has this little keep alive that's going on. And, and it is really fast. It, so some of the difficulties that um, I guess are just challenges, and I'm curious about how you uh, perceive this, is just that you know, it's not your typical request response kind of cycle. So new people to the project might be unfamiliar with that. So bringing them mm-hmm. up to speed would be part of it. But then also, sometimes you have uh, loss of connection. And like Phoenix has JavaScript libraries to help you re- recover that connection. But like, is there, have you had any problems with that where you're, you know, people are on mobile devices and they're going in and out of connectivity? Like, what's that like for you and your system? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, one is that I think sockets have a cool factor. So trying to get your team to want to do it isn't necessarily hard. You know, it's not like, it's not like they have to eat their vegetables to, to want to play with sockets. Good point. Um, so I think that part's, you know, that part you can overcome. Uh, and some of the, the complexities of socket connections are abstracted. You know, the phoenix.js uh, file that, you know, that comes 
uh, that you can get from the, the repo there. Um, that combined with how Apollo and that PhoenixJS file uh, work together, there's a couple absent libraries. So with that, you know, it's a little easier than having to do it from the ground up or do it from scratch. Uh, I, I think in a lot of cases, there's no, there's no perceivable difference in how it's and, and how you make the request and response. There's a lot that changes behind the scenes, but that's mostly been abstracted by the Phoenix team and the Absinthe and the Apollo team. So getting somebody new uh, in there, they may not even know that the connection is being made over sockets. Uh, but there are some things you do need to take into account, particularly uh, connections dropping. Um, there is, here's an example that you, you have to deal with. And this one kind of got me for a little while. Um, when you connect to a socket uh, in the browser, when the browser tab is closed, that will close the connection, right? And done. You know, you, you open the connection and then you made all your requested responses or subscriptions or whatever. And then the, the user navigates away from your website and that the browser will close the connection at that point. With Node from server to server, that doesn't happen. There is no like browser that will close the connection for you. You have to close the connection. But Nuxt does not fire an event that says that it's done. Uh, you know, I've, I'm done now. I'll, I've now sent this the static markup to the browser. Uh, there's no kind of lifecycle event that says it's finished, which could mean that you end up leaving these uh, connections open with Phoenix indefinitely. Uh, they'll never close. So there's things like little things like that that you wouldn't have to normally worry about that you, you have to address. So they're little gotchas, but none of them are like, you know, insurmountable. <laughs> it's fun. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's fun to see that a connection or a request response that normally would have taken, you know, 150 milliseconds is now taking like 22. Yeah, it's incredible. Absolutely yeah. incredible. <laughs> so I wanted to maybe return back to an earlier topic. We just briefly mentioned that uh, when you were starting that uh, refactor and of the back end, mm -hmm and you started to move to Elixir, you looked at a couple of different technology options that you mm -hmm. could have gone with instead of Elixir. And you'd mentioned, I think, Node and Go. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just curious as to where you saw the, the benefits of Elixir over those other technologies and what helped you choose that Elixir over that. Right. Um, well, uh, I, and I kind of mentioned this in, in my article a bit as, as to kind of why I went with or why I didn't go with some of those other options. Uh, JavaScript is the ubiquitous language, right? And there's the promise of you no know, cognitive uh, overhead and having to switch. Uh, you know, there's the benefit. If you're already doing universal JS, why not just keep going with, with it on the back end? There's some promises there, but there's a lot of issues I have with JavaScript. I, you know, I've been writing JavaScript for over 10 years, uh, maybe 15 years. And I've kind of seen it, you know, quote unquote, mature over those 15 years. And if that's maturity, then, uh, you know, I don't want to see what immaturity looks like because it's, it's been pretty brutal to see it evolve over the last 15 years. There was a little glimmer of hope. I started in Flash and Adobe was spearheading this ActionScript 3. They were working with the ECMA team and uh, it looked like JavaScript was really going to uh, you know, get classes and inheritance, you know, all the promises of OOP. And then, uh, you know, I remember at the time, it was understood that Microsoft derailed it because it wasn't backwards compatible with their browsers. 
And I think there's more politically correct versions of that story circulating, but I remember it pretty distinctly that it was Microsoft that, that, that kind of um, blew the whole thing up. And so what we got instead was what I call, you ever see the movie Demolition Man with Wesley Snipes and, and Sylvester Stallone? Yeah. Long ago. Long time. Right. So, so what happens is that there's this giant earthquake and Los Angeles goes to rubble. And instead of cleaning it all up, they build a city on top of it called San Angeles. And that's JavaScript. Instead of cleaning it all up, they built a new language on top of it. And now you've got to deal with all the issues of this underlying rubble of Los Angeles underneath the pretty San Angeles. And, uh, you know, that's, that's an issue. Uh, you know, there's, it manifests in all kinds of different ways, from performance to productivity, uh, the way the language evolves. There's, so, I, as you can tell, I'm not a super huge fan of, of JavaScript. Uh, I think the syntax is, is pretty ugly, uh, you know, semicolons everywhere. You know, I, I, there's a lot of uh, noise. It, it, it's very terse um, or verbose, sorry. So uh, I wanted to get away with that, get away from that if I could. Um, and so, as you know, Elixir is extremely terse and uh, really clean. There's no unnecessary semicolons or return statements, uh, et cetera. So that, that immediately kind of um, attracted me to Elixir. Uh, the functional element manifests in interesting ways too, uh, in that, you know, like the pipeline op operator, like the pipe operator and, uh, the pattern matching. And this is, this sounds silly. I didn't put this in my article, but I love the fact that you can, uh, you can have a trailing question mark or, or, a, a bang. It sounds silly, but you can't do that in a lot of other languages without it thinking that it's a ternary operator or whatever. And to me, it's so intuitive to be able to say enabled question mark, as opposed to thinking enabled is a getter setter that will set it to true or false or, you know, that kind of, there's some issues that arise with certain words that you don't know if this is a method or this is an attribute or what, being able to put that little question mark or the bang symbol to say that, yes, it's going to be a true or false or it's going to throw an error. That's, that's really cool. I, I, people don't really talk about that, but I, I think that's, that's awesome. So my biggest attraction to Elixir was the syntax and some of the productivity benefits that come along with being uh, functional. I think there's, you know, they call it side effects. There are these um, side effects of OOP and being able to accidentally mutate a variable. And JavaScript is, uh, is notorious for these scope issues. And so what's the difference between a var and let and constant and you know when the variable is going to be accessible and, and then the argument is oh well a good developer knows like i don't even want to have to deal with that and i don't have to deal with it in elixir so that was um that was pretty quickly and but i, I did give note of its fair shot and i did look at the uh you know clustering and performance comparisons it does have sockets built in so that there was a brief moment where i entertained it but uh, i quickly moved away from that now go um it's not quite, it's probably a little bit more uh, larger of a community than Elixir is, I think, subjectively, at least as far as you know, I can tell. Um, it's a very high performance language. And, I, and I've noticed that if you want to run uh, some kind of server apps, like, like for instance, we use Go to do some of our image processing. If you want to power through some backend processing, I think Go is pretty good for that, especially if you're coming from an OOP uh, background and you're familiar with that. Uh, but as far as it being used for 
uh, the web, you know, for the web app uh, being the kind of the, the main technology the, or the point of entry, I felt Elixir makes a lot of sense. And I think they even, I think they talk about this, you know, Chris talks about this in the, the uh, Programming Phoenix book, that it's, it's odd how functional a request and response is, that, that a request comes in and then it's uh, transformed along the way before it gets spit out the end as a response. And when you start thinking of uh, the web in that way, functional languages make a lot of sense. I'm, I'm not saying that functional, it's like that saying, like when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, I'm not saying that functional should be used for everything, but for the web in particular, I think functional programming makes a lot of sense, especially on the back end. So that was another reason why I was attracted to Elixir. It makes intuitive sense to me to, to use it for a request and response or just even the back end in general. Um, there's some things about Go that I, I didn't like, uh, the way it handles errors. And so I think the way that Elixir handles errors is, is really intuitive and, and graceful that it doesn't necessarily, I mean, of course you can throw an error, but oftentimes an error is just a tuple response, right? And you can structure your case statements, uh, optimistically where that initial, the top of your case statement will be the thing you hope it will come back as. And you can, you can have this kind of tree of logic that is optimistic at the top and then gets more and more granular in your, in your error response as you go down. And uh, you don't see that, you almost see the opposite of that in Go, that they will start with their errors before they'll finally get to the success response. And I, I think that that opens you up to being a little bit sloppy on your error responses. And it's not as optimistic looking. It's not as intuitive to read either. Cause you're like, okay, error this, error that, you know, error this, error. Oh, there's the finally the success. Whereas Elixir it's boom. It's, you know, at least the way that I write it, the, the okay response is always at the top. That's interesting. Just that perspective of, you know, as I'm writing the code, I'm thinking about like, I just want to make this work, right? That's my first pass Just make this yeah. work. And I'm thinking about my happy path. And that's right. kind of what you're talking about is that you're able to, because of the syntax and the structure of the language, it's easy to just kind of like with the pipeline operators, I'm just kind of looking at like, what is my happy path? If everything is successful, what, should, what does that look like? And where does that flow? And I think that's, right. that's cool that you, you bring that out. And then you can layer in, you know, the, this condition or that condition or, you know, anything that happens off the happy path. Uh, but you get to kind of start with the way you hope it works and then layer it in later. Yeah. You don't, you almost, it's go as far as I can say, I'm not an expert in go, but, but from what I've seen and what I, what I found in my experiments is that it's almost the opposite, but there's no arguing goes performance. You know, it's, it's a very performant language. One thing that I'm curious about, um, so GraphQL initially was implemented in JavaScript and, you know, absinthe. And I've also, you know, in, in Ruby, they have a Ruby GraphQL, uh, yeah. library that, you know, for a long time was very beta and had issues. Um, I'm, I'm curious, have you had to work through many issues with Absinthe not lining up with the GraphQL standard or did you kind of come into it once it had pretty much stabilized? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, JavaScript definitely, uh, and, and really even more specifically, the Apollo team, uh, have, I think they're probably spearheading it more so than, than Facebook is at this mm -hmm. point. And, uh, you know, they just released Apollo server 2.0 and that comes with a bunch of bells and whistles that I don't think have found their way into absinthe. So absinthe is kind of on a delay, but 
I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing. You know, I, I, it, is, it is on a delay, but, but what, I've, what I've found is that Apollo will release something and then, uh, you know, the Absinthe team will say, oh, that's awesome. You know, let's, let's go implement that. And like a month later, then Absinthe has it. So I don't, I don't see it as, as, as really an issue, but it is true that if you want to stay on the bleeding, bleeding edge of what GraphQL is capable of, then, then JavaScript might be the better choice. Yep. The other thing is, is uh, like there are third-party services like GraphQL or Prisma yeah. you can use now for GraphQL. Have you felt the need to look into any of those or are you pretty happy with your setup? Uh, you know, I did look into GraphQL. I, um, I initially looked into GraphQL and, and some others uh, very early on. And even to a certain extent today, people are still trying to, the, the spec, the GraphQL spec gives you enough rope to hang yourself with. And there's, there's a lot of kind of, there's a layer of opinion that needs to get added on top uh, to really be productive. And so GraphQL and, and anybody who has a public facing API, I mean, GitHub or Shopify or any of these folks, if you look at their APIs, you'll see that they're, they're pretty different from each other. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to their opinions on how they're going to handle uh, you know, input queries or mutations and what their payload responses are going to be. So uh, I, I didn't feel like committing to something like graphic. It's a very opinionated layer. Um, so I didn't feel like that was something that made a lot of sense. Maybe, it'll, maybe when the dust settles and everybody kind of coalesces around certain practices, it, it will make sense. But I, I didn't want that kind of scared me a little bit from wanting to go with GraphQL. That makes sense. Plus, I felt like, you know, Absinthe is a great tool. So I don't want to belittle what they've done. It's a great tool and the documentation is really good. Um, it's, it's very intuitive to get going, you know, up and going with it quickly. So I didn't feel intimidated by what Absinthe was doing. So the, we talked about Elixir, quickly touched on uh, the contain, Docker containers. I don't know if you guys, you know, care about that. But uh, um, then we talked a lot about Nuxt. Yeah, I mean, I guess I covered a lot, a lot of it. I, I I do uh, I do have interest in the Docker containers. Um, I guess the one question I have is when you deploy the Docker containers, do you wrap them all up in one uh, in one uh, bundle? I don't know what the Docker term for it is, but um, you got your Docker file for each single app, and then you have this this Docker config or whatever on the outside wrapping it all. Is that how yeah. you do it, or do you actually deploy them separate, like separate, uh, completely completely separate? Uh, there's a couple ways of looking at that. One is um, there's something called Docker Compose. That's what I was that will, yeah. Right, yeah. And that's a way that you can kind of have multiple containers talking to each other. And um, you might have heard the term pod. Uh, that's used by the, the, you know, the Google, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, Kubernetes or, I don't know. Yep. They really should pick words that are, yeah. So, <laughs> I, I've, you know, if you're going to pick a name for something, you should make it easy to, uh, to pronounce, but, um, they, they'll use the term pod, it, it, which is, it's kind of like an abstraction around Docker compose to a certain extent. Um, that's one way to look at it, but then you also have other applications. If you want to get into kind of the service oriented architecture or the, or even the microservice, uh, way of doing things. So for instance, our Nuxt app, is uh, deployed via Docker Compose because there's a container that handles uh, the uh, Nginx, the proxy, as well as Nuxt. 
And then we have a, a different entire set of Compose um, that handles, we still use PHP for some stuff that's still deployed like our, um, our reverse proxy for image, for our image uh, derivatives. Like if you, you want to have a medium version of the image or a large version or a thumbnail version, that's all handled through PHP still. Um, we do primitives, uh, and actually we tie that into Go. So all that is in one kind of Docker Compose with its own Nginx, and then we have Elixir in its own. So you can kind of think of them as bundles or, you know, pods. Gotcha. Yeah. I got to say, for those people who are not watching this, but they are um, listening, um, our guest Bobby looks just like a, a mix between Tom Selleck and, oh, man, who who would you say? Like you're like a Tom Selecki looking dude. You're you're quite a, a a handsome dapper dude. I gotta say. <laughs> thanks, thanks. I, I I live in Miami, so I have to be, or else they, they stone you to death. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Mental yeah. note: never go to Miami. <laughs> um, yeah, I, sometimes I, I sometimes I get Bradley Cooper. I get I get that. So no, okay, I can see that. Yeah, like a a black haired Bradley Cooper. Yeah, one time I was at a gas station, just you know, filling up my car, and this guy came to me, came up to me, said Bradley, and I was like, what? Who? And then he said Bradley Cooper, right? And I was like, no. And and then he said, no, you're Bradley. Like he I, he thought that I was Bradley Cooper trying to not have to sign an autograph or something. So I'm genuinely telling him I am not Bradley Cooper, and he's like telling me that I am, and that uh, and then he's not buying it. And then he wants me to sign his autograph. I was like, fine, you know, I'll, I'll send you an autograph. That is too funny. Too, too funny. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Now that Great. we're off in Bradley Cooper land. <laughs> uh, yeah. Eric, do you have some picks for us? Uh, yeah. So lately, I've had the, the pleasure and struggle of running a business. And as I have stepped away from a developer role and more into a, uh, a business dev role and marketing and sales and basically every single thing that's not development. And then dealing with, um, or dealing with the communications with the development team, it's been very eye-opening to me. Um, it's like I'm seeing things from the other side. And as a developer, for me at least, over the years, it was very much kind of an us against them. At least I think it can get that way depending on where you work. And seeing it from the other side really changes things where I guess, my, I guess what I want to say for my pick is I'm sorry to all of you business people in the past where I was maybe a prima donna or <laughs> whatever it might be. I'm sorry. Uh, I get it now. And, um, I, <laughs> no. you were, you were right. Eric has empathy. I empathy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. My empathy level went way high on this. So there you go. That's awesome. Nice. That's Mark, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. What I would just wanted to pick was, uh, so I changed jobs recently and I run a local, uh, Elixir meetup. And I kind of got it put on hold for a little bit while I was getting re, re kind of set up and, Need to talk with people about getting um, approval for the new office space to do things like that. But uh, so I just wanted to pick that it is really cool to be able to meet with people in real life, you know, and actually have meetups where you build connections and network with people. And you don't think of it as networking, like, oh, I'm I'm just going there so I can meet people, so it'll serve me and somehow help me better. It's like, no, 
you just kind of go to to meet people and like connect and say, hey, what are you doing with Elixir? And I'm I want to share and show you all the cool stuff that I think is cool about Elixir. It doesn't have to be about Elixir too. You know, it can it can be about Nuxt, it can be about Vue or React or anything. But just getting out into physical space, meeting people, talking about cool tech, I think there's a lot of value in that. And I I just pick um, that you make an effort to find some local meetups that you could join and uh, just go out and meet people and have fun in meet space. Awesome. I'm going to piggyback on that because there's something that I was going to pick that's related to that. Um, So I've been working on a course and I keep telling people I'm going to complete this course. Um, But I I have committed, I'm opening up pre-sales for it and I've committed to putting the course out by um, Labor Day. So you will, you will have full delivery of the course or the ebook that goes along with it, um, depending on which one you want by Labor Day. And it's on finding a job. Um, I, I get questions all the time. And it's usually from new people. It's like, how do I get my first job? Or they went through a boot camp and some influencer at the boot camp helped them find their job. So they don't know how to find their next job. Or they live in some remote area where there's not a large tech community and so they're having a little bit of trouble finding a job that's not through the conventional job search thing. And I address all of those. Um, but one of the first things I tell people to do is to go find a users group. If you can find a users group to go participate in, be it online or in person, in person's better. But again, you know, some of these people are remote. And so, you know, go find an online group that you can participate in. And the, the reason I tell people to do that is exactly, you know, for what, Mark brought up. It's not just so that you can expand your network. Though if you're trying to find a job, that's generally why you're going to be involved is so that you can meet people, but also so that you can get out there and help folks. And you really do make a difference for uh, the folks in that particular arena. So, you know, even if you're helping somebody who's just a step below you, right, they're self-taught and they're figuring things out if you're newish, or if you're experienced, you know, you can make a difference that way and people can see what you're capable of. It kind of works both ways. And so, yeah, anyway, if you're interested in that, um, the book and the course will both be 50% off until Labor Day. So if you're looking for a job and you want to kind of have it dripped out to you as I get it done, then that is the place to be. And um, I'm pretty sure this episode will go out uh, in a week as we record this. So you should have like the first quarter or third of the book and course available by the time you do the pre-order. And then I'll just let people know as I add more content. Um, but uh, I went to Podcast Movement last, last week. And I, I guess I should mention that as a pick. Um, it's a conference for podcasters. And that's what really inspired me to just get in and get this stuff done. I'm really hoping to be able to create more content too for technical audiences and things like that. So, you know, maybe an introduction to Elixir or Phoenix or something. I don't know if I'm going to go as in-depth as some of the courses that are out there. It might just be like uh, intro to Elixir in an hour or intro to Phoenix in an hour. And so it's just kind of, hey, look, you know, we're going to, you know, if you don't know Elixir, go pick up the Elixir in an hour. And then here's Phoenix in an hour and we'll just, you know, get you as far along as we can. But yeah, I'd like to start making more of that content because I also see a lot of people asking how to level up or what to learn next. And I feel like through the podcast, I have a pretty good idea of what people are learning or working on or things like that. And so I can kind of uh, create the content that folks want. So anyway, if you're interested in any of that, you can also email me, Chuck at devchat.tv. And then uh, the second pick that I have is my wife grew up watching, you know, all, all the musicals because her grandma was really into it. And 
I watched some of them, but it was just the ones that my parents liked. And so she found out that I had never seen South Pacific, which is a musical by Rodgers and Hammerstein. And so uh, she rented it on iTunes and we watched it on Sunday. And I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I think some of the camera filters they put on it were kind of weird, but the music's terrific. The acting's fun. Um, yeah, it was done in the 50s. So some of it's overacted in the way that 50s movies are, but fun show. So if you're looking for some fun stuff, um, yeah, check that out because uh, it's, it's a fun movie. Uh, Bobby, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think, um, and I'm, I'm in no way affiliated with this group, but I think Audible uh, has um, kind of been a, a, com- a core component of my life in probably the, the last year and a half in that I... I I'm really big on the idea of continuously learning. And I kind of aspire to this idea of being a polymath in that you could learn something in one field and use that knowledge to solve problems in a completely unrelated field. Mm -hmm. So learning functional programming so that you could be a better functional programmer is very direct, but you could learn how to work on a car and somehow what you learned in that process will apply to how you would be a better coder, things like that. And uh, so over the last year and a half, I've been, because I don't have the time to necessarily sit down and read through a Kindle or, or whatever. It's great. I can go to the gym and I can, you know, have the audible going and I can, I can go through a bunch of books in a, in a month. And uh, so I've, I've spent the last, uh, ever since really, even before the election, I started to get into economics and, and philosophy, and I probably read a book on economics or philosophy a month amongst the, any of the other books that I'm into. So I'm a big uh, believer in Audible. And, um, and then a lot, of, and a lot of times you can, um, the book that you get on Audible, you can actually open up on your Kindle so you can read uh, and then pick it up with the, Audi- the Audible and then jump back into the Kindle later in the same spot. So that, that's kind of a cool feature. Yep, absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, the political and economics and stuff. One of my favorite books that I've listened to on Audible that's on economics is Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. Dude, if if you had asked me what was the one book that I would recommend on economics, it would be that book. It's it's awesome. And if if you're wondering about economics, I mean, he just breaks it down in a really, really clear way. Yeah, I when I first started getting into economics, I started with Milton Friedman. Um, and that led me to Thomas Sowell mm-hmm. and I've probably read a dozen Thomas Sowell books, you know, basic economics, um, intellectuals and society. Um, I, I read his, when he first got out of college, he wrote a book on Marxism. I really try to, to understand the entire spectrum. I mean, I don't want to be in an echo chamber. He has got a book on ethnic America that talks about the impact of immigrations, uh, immigrants coming to the United States and, the kind of the assimilation process that they went through, you, you learn things. So like, uh, I remember one thing that really stood out is he was talking about Germans and, and what happened when the Germans came to the United States. And it seems so obvious, but, just, but you realize like kindergarten, the Frankfurter, you know, the hot dog, mm-hmm. um, Miller Lite, uh, Anheuser-Busch, these are the hamburger. These are very German things that are also very American things that we wouldn't have if it weren't for those, you know, those initial German immigrants. So, um, you know, not, not to go too, too political, but, um, uh, Thomas Sowell is great. He's a, he's a national treasure as far as I'm concerned. Yep. 
Very cool. Well, one last question. If people want to see what you're working on these days or, um, you know, get your thoughts on technology and things like that, where do they go for that kind of thing? Well, uh, if you want to see my escapades in Miami, then you can follow me on Instagram. It's, it's B junk is in Bobby Junkosa. Um, same for Twitter. Um, I'm on, t- on Twitter as, as B junk. If I'm, if I'm working on something or if I write a new article, or so, I, I typically will post it to, to Twitter. And that's uh, B-J-U-N-C or J-U-N-K? C, right? A little yeah. play on the, on the name. Yeah, good, yeah. good call. Um, and, and then I'm on Medium and I'm going to try to be more diligent about putting articles out. Uh, I've been asked about, you know, Nuxt and, and Sockets and, and a bunch of other things. So I, and, and I want to make Elixir more tangible. I think a lot of times Elixir is talked about in this really kind of high performance tier if you're trying to squeeze out like that last bit of performance, you've got to deal with nine nines and concurrency and all these issues, but not all of us are operating at that level. And I, and I think that Elixir does have the ability to apply across the entire spectrum. And so I would like to write more articles about Elixir from the context of beginner or small businesses, because it's a very productive language. And when you're a small business or your startup, productivity is key, not necessarily performance. Yep, right. So, you know, having a very productive language like Elixir is, I mean, Ruby kind of falls in that category too. The difference being that Elixir can, can really truly scale um, kind of beyond what, what Ruby is capable of. No, no, you know, no bashing on Ruby, but, but you know what I mean? Yep. Yep. So yeah, the, the, on Medium, um, you can just search for me under, under Bobby Junkosa and then uh, be junk for both Instagram and Twitter. Very cool. Well, and you can always check out Edgewise Realty. You know, Ed, Ed, that's, that's the company, Edgewise Realty. You can see what, what we're deploying. Sounds like fun. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, thank you again for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, All right. Bobby. We'll have another episode next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.